Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Can I encourage you, please, to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. We continue uh, the reading that was read earlier. Uh, Israel having uh, successfully crossed over uh, the River Jordan, and we pick up the reading at chapter 4, verse 1. And before uh, we read, let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you that your word is powerful and clear. We pray that you might use it this morning to speak to our minds and our hearts. And to that end, we pray that by your spirit, you would open these minds and these hearts to your word. Speak in such a way that our lives know its transforming power and consequently, you might be glorified by the transformation that takes place. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Joshua 4, verse 1, and we're reading uh, only the first seven verses, though I will uh, make reference to uh, the later verses. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, The Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you will lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Now, traditionally, Uh, New Year's Eve is a time for reflection and contemplation, and I'm sure we experience a wide range of emotions. Past experiences uh, may well generate anxiety as we consider the future because our life's journey seems beset with one obstacle after another. Uh, Johnny Erickson writes these words, take those road hazards, the potholes, ruts, detours, and all the rest as evidence that you're on the right route. But as the Israelites viewed a humanly insurmountable barrier as they advanced down the Jordan escarpment, they must have wondered, are we indeed on the right route? A rushing torrent of water 
not unlike what we've seen recently on the television, uh, rivers flooding, sweeping away cars and caravans. Just yesterday I read in the paper of a four by four that was swept away by the River Esk uh, with the loss of three lives. A powerful, raging river uh, is not something you want to contemplate uh, crossing. The River Jordan in spate was denying Israel access to the land that God had promised almost 500 years previously to Abraham. However, they were about to learn a lesson of seminal importance. God can be trusted to dismantle every barrier that blocks the route to promised blessing. And grasping this truth is no less important for us today than it was to Israel then. And as we examine God's dismantling work this morning, I want us to examine uh, three points. Uh, the objectives it achieves, the preparation it involves, and finally, the remembrance it requires. Well then, the objectives it achieves. Firstly, this barrier was to test Israel's faith. You see, God could have led them into Canaan by a different route, but he didn't. He could have brought them to the River Jordan at a different time of the year when it was a mere trickle, but he didn't. Why? Why? Well, this wasn't Israel's first opportunity to enter Canaan. In Numbers 13, 18 following, we read that 40 years previously, Israel dismissed the intelligence report brought by Joshua and Caleb, and instead they were swayed by the 10 other spies, big fierties who argued that an invasion will never succeed. We are no match for their warriors, their giants. Forget it. And what happened? Well, unbelief triumphed. Fear eroded Israel's confidence in God. Israel said, we don't trust God to be faithful to his covenant promises. Instead, we choose, we choose to place our trust in human intelligence. Human intelligence. Well, well. God has now brought Israel to the River Jordan for a reset. I'm sure students who have failed their exams enjoy the prospect of having a reset, another opportunity to pass. Well, this was Israel's reset, uh, an opportunity to put their past failure behind them and to put their trust in God and in his faithfulness. If you've failed God in the past, and who of us haven't, 
Don't write yourself off. God grants resets. Isn't that marvelous? Secondly, the dismantling of the Jordan barrier would develop Israel's confidence in their leader. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. God tells Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. Now, Moses had led Israel for 40 years. Could Joshua measure up as his replacement? Moses now dead. Well, there are defining moments in the lives of God's lead leaders. The miraculous parting of the Jordan was to be God's seal on Joshua's leadership, just as David's defeat of Goliath was God's seal on David's future leadership. New and untested leadership in the church often raises the complaint, no one can ever match the last man, you'll never be as good as him. Well, God's chosen leaders can be confident that he'll find the means of setting his seal upon their leadership. Thirdly, dismantling this barrier would strengthen Israel's assurance that God was with them. Verse 10 of chapter 3, this is how you will know that the Lord is among you to drive out the Canaanites, etc. After 40 years in the, in the wilderness wandering around, did some wonder, have the promises of God lost their momentum? Is he still mighty to save? Is God really unwavering in His commitment towards us? Is He? You see, the past faithlessness of God's people is often the very ammunition that Satan fires to suggest we can't expect to experience the unwavering commitment of God towards us. And as we'll see, God's remarkable activity at the Jordan would prove significant in strengthening his people's assurance. His faithfulness towards them had not diminished one iota. But secondly, what about the preparation that is involved here? Faced with the River Jordan, what preparation might we expect Israel to make. Perhaps the, the construction of a Bailey bridge strung out across the river. Well, no, that would not happen. Significantly, all of their preparation is designed to fix their attention upon God. Notice this. All of it is designed to fix their attention upon God. The great dismantler of barriers. First in verse 5, they're told to consecrate themselves. Now, often, when Israel are told to consecrate themselves, the, the context is that of God's self-disclosure. And the Jordan spectacle would be no different 
the external rite of consecration pointed to an internal reality. Their external washing pointed to their need of internal cleansing. For invariably, the real barrier that stood between them and their enjoyment of God's blessing was disobedience and sinful unbelief. And now, confession of sin and repentance stood to the fore. You see, for them to fully grasp the significance of God's revelation, they needed prepared hearts. For it is to prepared hearts that God makes himself known. Otherwise, they would have viewed the Jordan miracle but failed to understand its meaning or gain any spiritual benefit from it. Remember, many saw Jesus' miracles but failed to understand their meaning. How can two people listen to the same sermon and one say, you know, today God has graciously spoken to my heart. He has addressed my needs. Uh, I've known words of comfort from God. His presence has been so very real through his word. And the other says, well, that sermon did absolutely nothing for me. Two people hearing the same sermon. Only the first came with a prepared heart to church. And to him, God revealed himself through his living word. How prepared are our hearts this morning. Secondly, Israel's focus, notice, is directed towards the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's mentioned 17 times in 22 verses. The ark, which symbolized God's presence, God's throne, and which contained the very word of God. The ark is the major player in this drama. And three things would become apparent to Israel as they follow the ark uh, down the slope towards the Jordan. They're coming about half a mile or so. Uh, behind uh, the ark. First, they would notice that the supernatural pillar of cloud that had led them in the wilderness for 40 years, Exodus 40 verse 38, it was no longer visible. This supernatural guide was no longer there. That form of guidance is now terminated. Instead, the ark now leads them. And following it meant following what it contained, God's word, God's commandments. Following God meant obeying him. It means becoming increasingly the people of the book. Often, young Christians ask God for supernatural guidance. Lord, give me a sign. I'd love a sign just to know what to do. But that doesn't develop spiritual maturity. God may mercifully, occasionally, 
uh, provide such signs. But normative guidance, normative guidance involves deepening our relationship with the guide. And that only happens as we immerse ourselves in his word and become conformed to its teaching. Only then are we able to see beyond the barriers to the God who dismantles them. Secondly, Israel watched the priests take God at his word and march right into the river. The river only parted once their feet touched the water, chapter 3, verse 16. Real faith doesn't wait to commit itself only to what it can see and process at a sensual level. If Israel was to possess this land by faith, then it was vitally important to build this lesson into their spiritual DNA. The book of Hebrews tells us that the walls of Jericho fell down by faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. I wonder, can you see that the Jordan tutorial would still have been fresh in their minds as they marched around Jericho? They had seen the waters part as they responded in faith to God's word. God said, march around uh, the city of Jericho. And I'm sure everyone else would have laughed and said, well, there are Ridiculous! What a ridiculous command to give. But the Jordan tutorial was still fresh in their minds. And round and round they marched until those walls uh, collapsed. Uh, what uh, an amazing picture uh, that is. Genuine faith is both obedient and expectant in response to the promises of a God of faithfulness. Thirdly, and of great significance, I believe, Israel watched the priests park the ark halfway across the Jordan and keep it there until all of Israel had passed over. Now, the natural response to that towering heap of water held back further up the river would have been to stampede across the dry river bed. But... The presence of the ark in the middle of the Jordan was God's way of saying, I am placing myself between the threat of danger and my people's safety. What immeasurable comfort such a strong guarantee of safety must have given to Israel. The psalmist expresses a similar thought in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I often thought, how could he sit down and enjoy a meal knowing that he was in his enemy's sights? Very easily. Middle Eastern hospitality requires the host to take upon himself the responsibility for his guest's safety. And so, standing at the tent opening, he'd say to the threatening menace, if you want him, 
then you have to deal with me first. And that's exactly what God does. He says to all potential threats, if you plan ultimate harm to my children, then you have to deal with me first. I wonder if we can allow that remarkable truth to sink in to our hearts and throw them. Thirdly, the remembrance God's activity required. The bulk of the text in chapter 4 is given over to the construction of the remembrance monument. It was made up of 12 stones taken from the Jordan River bed. This reminder of God's overcoming the barrier that prevented access to his promised blessing was to be used as a teaching aid for future generations. Uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 7, chapter 4, verse 21. When your children ask, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell, uh, let your children know. And so the story goes on. God's redeemed people were constantly exhorted to remember his mighty acts of deliverance and provision. Uh, read through Deuteronomy chapter 6 again and again and again. God says, remember, 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 remember my deliverance uh, from out of the land of bondage. Remember my provision in your wilderness wanderings. Remember. Now listen to the complaint that's published in Psalm 78, verse 11. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. How could they? How could they? Forgetfulness has been called one of the greatest enemies of faith. What then might we expect this memorial cairn to teach both then and now as children say, uh, what are these stones here for? And the father says, well, uh, God opened up the river Jordan to let us pass safely across. And the implications of that are what? First, humanly insurmountable barriers are not insurmountable to God. As a child, I can remember singing, God, any rivers you think are uncrossable, God, any mountains you can't tunnel through, God specializes in things thought impossible, and he can do what no others can do. Uh, the smiles of some of you indicate that you've sung that uh, as uh, well. Uh, and that includes, that includes dismantling the greatest barrier of all which separates us from God, our sin. There is no greater uh, barrier. And no amount of human effort can dismantle it. Do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked uh, what he could do to access God's kingdom? And he discovered that his moral and religious best was inadequate. His law-keeping may have put him right up there in the eyes of his peers, the best of the best. Who's like him? And yet it wasn't good enough. 
And that was the inescapable reality that impressed itself upon the disciples. And they said to Jesus, who then can be saved? If, if this guy hasn't made it, who then can be saved? To which Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. He is the God of the impossible. God alone can dismantle that sin barrier. He sent Jesus into the world for that very purpose. And Jesus died upon the cross, and as he did so, he held back the torrent of God's righteous judgment that should have rightfully engulfed each one of us. And he did so by absorbing the deluge of punishment that we, each one of us, deserve. He took our place. Do you see what this means? He alone provides safe passage into God's kingdom. I wonder if there are some here this morning who have still to make that crossing. Let me urge you, to do so today. Jesus has held back the judgment that we deserve. He has been punished in the stead of his people. What about barriers that prevent Christians from progressing into the fullness of God's blessing? For some, it may be the struggle of some besetting sin or pressures from workplace or family or friends. Let me encourage you to follow Paul's spiritual logic in Romans 8 and 32. He writes, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Similarly, by arguing from the greater to the lesser, answer this. If God has dismantled the great sin barrier, can he not also be depended upon to dismantle anything else that might prevent your spiritual progress and development? Is it too hard for him? If he's already dealt with the greatest barrier, of course not. Secondly, the cairn reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness. You see, he had kept his covenant promise by bringing Israel into Canaan. His faithfulness is guaranteed, for it is essential to his being. Satan often injects this thought into our minds. Can God really be trusted to keep his promises? Don't, don't they seem too good to be true? In Genesis 15, Abraham is found struggling to believe the promise that God gave him back in Genesis 12. Make your name great, give you a people, give you a land. Uh, you'll be the means of uh, blessing to the nations. He was struggling with that. And God came along in chapter 15 and provided him with a powerful spiritual aid. Uh, read it later at your leisure. But it implied this. 
Abraham, I will press the self-destruct button on the Godhead before I break a single promise that I have made. Men may become unfaithful out of fear, weakness, loss of interest, or pressurized by some external influences, but none of these forces can ever render God unfaithful. Wow, what a comfort, what a comfort that is. Thirdly, this cairn reminds us that faith is an appropriating grace. If God was the principal performer at the River Jordan, then Israel had a walk-on, or perhaps better, a walk-across role in this drama. And that involved placing their faith in God's provision. Saving faith in Scripture is never passive. It is always active. It stretches out to make God's offer our own. This morning, if you're not yet a Christian, it's not enough to believe that Jesus' death dismantles the sin barrier. Oh, you must believe that, but that's not enough. You must travel across the bridge that Christ's death has constructed. It is active faith that makes the blessing of God our own. Now, having crossed the Jordan by faith, the cairn pointed Israel not only to a past event, but it pointed out how they were intended to enjoy God's blessing in the future. They were to continue to walk by faith. If anything, the cairn was saying that, don't just look back to what God has done, but look forward. And by faith, he will continue to bless as you obey him. But Israel failed to do so by and large, for instead of exercising faith in God's performance, they reverted to faith in their own performance or in the performance of others. Uh, the bulk of the Old Testament uh, testifies to that. And before we're overcritical of them, the Christian church isn't immune from behaving in the same way. Paul wrote scathingly to the Galatian church, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Oh, they began their pilgrimage by faith. But then they were persuaded that God's continued blessing was something they needed to earn by law-keeping. Surely, we too need a constant reminder that the appropriating faith by which we entered God's kingdom is not only the entry point to blessing, but the very means by which we are to continue to enjoy it. When John Flavel, the Puritan, wrote, man's extremities are God's 
opportunities. I wonder if he had in mind the brick walls we sometimes come up against, the insurmountable barriers which seem to hinder our progress. And it is as we acknowledge our own helplessness and rest in the faithfulness of God to resolve those difficulties and bring us safely home that barriers are dismantled, rivers are parted, and walls collapse. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, for those who as yet have not placed their trust in you, and who have not as yet recognized their sin as the great barrier that denies them access into your presence. Help them to recognize that there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. Jesus only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Help them to place their trust and their confidence in the great barrier which you have dismantled. And for those who are believers, may we increasingly luxuriate in the knowledge that you are a faithful God. Your word of promise can never be broken. And may past deliverances deepen our trust in you to dismantle barriers which hinder our spiritual development and which we deem to be insurmountable. But you alone are able to dismantle. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's bring our service uh, to its close as we sing together. <clears throat>